0: Jason's Rebellion is a touchstone of identity in Western Massachusetts. What do you have in Boston? An unresponsive government. Many people would have looked at the key officials in the government of Massachusetts as the equivalent of all representatives of Goldman Sachs.
1: Uh, This is Bill Fowler, and I'm here today with Bob Gross. Professor of History at the University of Connecticut. And Bob has written an essay for the New England Quarterly called A Yankee Rebellion, The Regulators, New England, and the New Nation. It appears in the March 2009 issue of the New England Quarterly. Bob, I'd like to begin by asking you how it is that you became interested in Shays' Rebellion.
0: Well, Bill, as you know, I write about the history of the American Revolution, and my first book, *The Minute Men and Their World*, looked at Concord and how the town of Concord came to be the place for the opening battle on April 19, 1775, uh, of the War of Independence. And so, I'd studied Concord in eastern Massachusetts, taken it from the 1730s and 40s and its ongoing life through the Revolution and then the making of a republic, and actually well into the early 19th century. Concord was a town that was briefly uh, a site for the protests that were bound up with what's broadly called Shays' Rebellion. When that happened in Concord, Shays' was nowhere on the scene. and Job Shattuck from Groton, Massachusetts, led protesters to close the courts in Concord and stop uh, the legal processes at a time when many people felt that they were too poor, too hard-pressed to pay their debts. So I'd always known about Shays' Rebellion and actually had seen it, chiefly from the perspective of Concord, where the majority of the uh, inhabitants and certainly of the office holders were all for um, avoiding uh, bloodshed in the conflict, but broadly sympathized with policies being made from Boston. So I got a job at Amherst College, moved out to western Massachusetts, uh, and to the town of Amherst, which, as it would turn out, was a stronghold of protest against the policies being made in Boston in 1786-87 and turned out uh, one of the largest contingents of people to join the army that was led by Daniel Shade. In uh, 1985, knowing that the bicentennial Shade Rebellion was approaching, um, I got in contact with people at Historic Deerfield and said to them, what do you think about putting together a conference? on Shays' Rebellion. Let's look at the whole event, and you might be interested simultaneously. I was teaching an institute for secondary school teachers in the Pioneer Valley on Shays' Rebellion and the Constitution, and um, was designing
1: a course to be taught at Amherst College in American Studies. Well, before before you began that, was there a deep interest out there in Amherst and Deerfield in Shays' Rebellion?
0: Jay's Rebellion is a touchstone of identity in western Massachusetts.
1: Uh, In the
0: town of Pelham, in Amherst, in uh, a whole uh, swath of towns in Hampshire County and Berkshire County and also in uh, Worcester County, Jay's Rebellion um, really took hold and was what we might broadly call, in today's terms, a populist insurgency. Uh, Deerfield is actually an elitist stronghold, and not that many populists come from the town of Deerfield. When you go to historic Deerfield today, you won't find them um, clamoring uh, to get in. Um, But all the towns around Deerfield were small, rural towns, mainly agricultural. And um, this is true of Hampshire County, town of Amherst and its surrounding towns. And what essentially is the case is that people saw themselves in western Massachusetts being neglected by Boston and being oppressed by Boston and its taxes. And a key reason why Shays' Rebellion is remembered there is that's how people in western Massachusetts have seen their position vis-a-vis Boston for the 200 years plus
1: since. Do you think that the position of western Massachusetts provided fertile ground then for Shays' Rebellion? Had the people of western Massachusetts out in the Berkshires and that area, had they long felt disaffected from the East? Actually, they chiefly had felt
0: um, that they were best let alone by the East. Now, this is an area that in the colonial period, especially say from the 1740s to the 1770s, was represented in the legislature by a group of uh, political figures who were broadly known as the river gods, people like the Williams family who would go year after year to the legislature, hold chief uh, leading positions, or get appointed by royal governors to the courts, and, and they were certainly would always be the justices of the peace for the area, the county squires, the figures, key figures in the militia. And broadly, the river gods dispensed political patronage, offices, contracts, kept a lot of people happy. Um, and they often oversaw the settlement of a lot of these new towns in the 1740s and after. Um, that was fine, and for the most part, Massachusetts barely taxed anybody in the colonial period, and it earned a lot of its money from um, selling, giving off lands and taxing them. And land speculators, we then organized settlements. Um, as the revolutionary period approached, there were more and more people who began to be critical of the river gods, um, in part, um, complaints about the, their exactions of fees and the like, as justices of the courts. Um, But some people, you know, saw them as just kowtowing to the royal government, and not until about 1774-75, after after Britain laid the Intolerable Acts on Massachusetts in retaliation for the Tea Party, not until then do you really see a political explosion in Hampshire County, as you actually see in Concord and elsewhere. This leads to a kind of overturning
1: of a lot of the River Gods. To the River Gods. uh... Uh, do they become Tory refugees, or do they stay about?
0: A number of them become refugees, and a lot of them just become quiet and they're neutral. Um, it's kind of interesting. Reverend Jonathan Ashley of Deerfield—he's basically a Loyalist—and um, but Deerfield's a Loyalist stronghold. In seventeen, uh, I think it's seventeen eighty-one or eighty-two. Um, town of Deerfield actually votes in town meeting to call on Massachusetts to call on the Continental Congress to make peace with Britain. Really? Yeah. And so, um, what you broadly have in the Connecticut Valley then is a collapse because of the association with British rule, of the old guard ruling structure, and the rise of a whole lot of new people who are uh, more populist. or are you know uh, angry about British policies. Their ambition to hold office themselves. Are they the
1: same? Are the new leaders of the same sort of socioeconomic economic class?
0: Um, sometimes they're richer. Kevin Sweeney has shown that. Some of the river gods are actually river gods who, who descended from people who came with the appearance of shoemakers and then rose over the generations. They're actually weakening in their wealth and, and some of the hold on power. Probably because the Hampshire County and elsewhere is growing politi- um, in population, there are more towns. It'd be harder and harder to control that demographic uh, burst.
1: So um, the notion then of uh, Tories necessarily representing the wealthy elites and the Patriot or the Whigs. Uh, being the less fortunate is not necessarily true.
0: Not true in all cases. And um, so you have this overturning of something of the river god structure and lots of new men coming into office and simultaneously what many of those people are angry about with British rule, they want to be left alone. You know, they hardly been taxed during the colonial period and the last thing they wanted was the intrusive hand of government to tax them.
1: So they're not necessarily driven by Lockean theories of representation and natural rights, the kinds of things that we often hear espouse, philosophical arguments. It is just leave us alone.
0: Well, leave us alone, but leave us alone to run our own affairs. In Berkshire County, you probably recall, after the courts were closed to protest the British measure, they don't reopened for, for quite a long time. And they not reopened because a group called the Berkshire Constitutional says, we're not opening these courts again and having regular processes of justice until Massachusetts gets a constitution that's been drawn up by representatives of the people and ratified by them. Massachusetts' rights uh, assembly writes the constitution in 1778, and voters repudiate it in Concord. They repudiate it um, on just these same grounds that a constitution should be a frame of government not made by the current office holders
1: but by people as specially elected to do so and they should be ratified by the people that happened. That, of course, I think was an unusual position, wasn't it at the time? I mean, other state constitutions had been written prior to this, right. during the revolution, but usually written by a legislative assembly of law. So right. now the people of Massachusetts, as you say, in Concord and Pittsfield and elsewhere, are calling for a special convention.
0: And that convention does come up with a constitution in 1780, and it's ratified. It's ratified in a vote that many people thought was somewhat rigged. Uh, One of the problems was that you could propose amendments, but, and so towns would vote for the Constitution and say, yeah, but we want this amendment. They had forgotten to say we need an up or down vote on this Constitution, whether or not it has amendments. So then the committee that had a look at all the votes decided um, if you say, well, yes or for, but we want an amendment, we're saying that's not a conditional vote. So they come up with this Constitution, which is popularly ratified constitution that in certain significant respects is conservative in its property holding requirements for office, which are incredibly uh, stiff for the governorship, the lieutenant governor. I think you have to be in like the top 3% of wealth holding in Massachusetts to be lieutenant governor. Um, To be in the Senate, uh, likewise. Um, To vote for members of the uh, House of Representatives, it's not all that different from what it was in the colonial period. Um, They keep the same structure of courts. And so many people are aggrieved, feeling that this constitution did not really open up the political system.
1: Are those aggrieved, uh, predominant, or most uh, prevalent in the western part of the Commonwealth? A lot
0: of them are in the western part of the Commonwealth. Um, Concord, which had called for a constitutional uh, writing ratification process that was akin to what the Berkshire was wanted, ratified the thing easily. You know, they really were proceduralists. And then once they got their procedure, they went with the document they had. So you get the new government on, and, and Hancock's the governor. And the real problem is that Bowdoin comes in as governor in what, 1784, and, uh, 1784, 85 And when his administration comes in, it's at the time that the Continental Congress is really pressing to pay off the debts, now that peace has come. And they've got foreign debts they've got to pay, they got debts to um, all kinds of lenders who, who and domestically who, who supplied the Continental Army and helped pay for the war, bought the bonds. And those, all these financial instruments had depreciated enormously. Um, and the Continental Congress said, well, we're going to fund everything at its face value, we're going to pay for it in gold and silver coin. A lot of people thought that was terribly unjust especially because lots of the soldiers who were leaving the Continental Army had been paid in the same kind of IOU. But when they were dismissed from the Continental Army, nobody said, here's some cash, go home. They said, find your own way home. And one of the ways these soldiers found their way home was by selling their IOU. Now, in fact, they often sold them to officers. And those officers um, left also having suffered a lot of financial losses and sac- made lots of sacrifices to win independence. And they would say, we made those loans to help them get home, not to make a killing off their necessities. But many people were furious when Massachusetts decided it would pay its own state debts, because it had also borrowed a lot to pay for the war, and would meet the requisitions of the Continental Congress the letter. This is now the, not so much the Continental Congress, as the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. And so Massachusetts begins levying heavy taxes in gold and silver coin to pay off the combined state and federal
1: debts in short order. Now, Bob, so that it, it would mean then that these debts, which were incurred during the revolution... These debt instruments, whatever we call them, IOUs or bonds, have been sold and resold by speculators to speculators, et cetera, et cetera. So the people now holding these debt instruments probably bought them at a very depreciated price. But now they're looking to have them uh, to be compensated by the state and Continental Congress at par value, which of course means they're going to make considerable profits. It sounds a bit to me like uh, toxic assets here. Yeah. I,
0: I think so, and and many people would have looked at the key officials in the government of Massachusetts as the equivalent of uh, representatives of Goldman Sachs, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Lehman Brothers, and uh, as and this is literally the case. We know from from the work of of um, Leo Richards, the historian at the University of Massachusetts, that. Quite a number of the figures in the Bowdoin administration and in the leading positions in the state senate were among the top holders of the debt. These are
1: public officials. Public
0: officials, holders of debt, who are making policies and levying taxes on the citizens to come up with the gold and silver coin at a time of financial uh, depression, of economic depression, to come up with the money to pay their taxes, which will go to the the, uh, creditors, of the Massachusetts government. Are people at the time aware of this,
1: or are they suspicious of They're what's They're suspicious. Going on? I
0: don't think they would have known all the facts. And there's an exaggeration, I mean, as there is the case today. Um, yes, you have people with enormous resources who are holding a lot of these assets, who, in fact, are you know, happy to have them paid at par. But you've also got, and I've seen this in Concord record, they have got widows, you've got estates mm-hmm. that are managing money for orphans, Nobody's farming, you know. You've got people running these estates who now have actual instruments in which they can invest and get returns. That, if government redeems its promises, will take
1: care of of people who are dependent on them. But the image of eastern within the Commonwealth, the image of eastern merchants and politicians holding these debts is one right. that is common throughout the Commonwealth. Right. One of the other things that's an interesting change
0: that a huge proportion of the established merchant class in Massachusetts, based in Boston in the poor towns, was wiped out during the revolution, most of them loyalists. Other people retired or went out of business or whatever. So you actually have um, new people filling the county houses of Boston as well as the political offices. Uh, so you're not you don't have any great tradition of respect for a whole class of people who are merchants, who are politicians. There's, oh yes, we know them, we can trust them. We've got people who've come to office through the revolution. We've got people who are merchants. Some came to wealth through privateering and other investments during the revolution. Um, there's lots of suspicion of them. And in my essay for the New Quarterly, I stress that they're also not people with a lot of experience in making policy. Um, the merchant class, the politicians in Boston, are pressing for a fast repayment of these debts. Every other state in the union is facing the same problem, they get popular protests and they often decide, okay, we'll do it on a slower schedule or we'll redeem the state debt first and then we'll get to the federal debt when the economy improves. Massachusetts the only one, and Rhode Island uh, actually... Passes a tax to, to do quick repayment to the debt, then all the officeholders are turned out of power. And a new populist coalition comes in and says, forget it. We're not going to pay these requisitions right now. Only Massachusetts
1: does vote. So, Bob, we have then rampant speculation, rising debt, inexperienced leadership seems to me like we're building to it something.
0: And let's add one other fact. Um, powerful economic interests based near the capital, inexperienced leaders, and inexperienced leaders who also think they're acting from principle. This isn't a cynical act. They think that they're going to be a, the advance guard of the new nation. Massachusetts led the way to oppose Britain its intolerable policies of taxation without representation, now Massachusetts will lead the way of proving that a republic can maintain its fiscal honor and maintain as a matter of principle that it should repay those who lent money to finance the Revolutionary War. This is a matter that republics keep their promises. You know, there's been all the speculation, intellectual speculation, that republics, are going to be um, doomed to fail because the people are, are changeable, fickle. No one keeps their promises. Uh, as soon as any public policy begins to hurt, the uh, citizens will uh, reject those who put those policies in. And then, of course, if the New Republic follows the model of the old world, they'll never be able to borrow any money from abroad. And then what will happen in the next war Because everybody knew you know, armies are financed not through current taxes, but through loans. That's how the Bush administration chose to pay for the um, Iraq war. So let's add principle uh, and a rigid insistence on principle to your set of factors. And it sounds incredibly like recent administrations in the United States determined to be on the uh, advance guard, fighting for a principle, you know, um, putting the financial costs in the future but being dependent upon lenders to a government that is imposing policies that these citizens do not necessarily support in the exact way that they're being done, and uh, going ahead with them anyway.
1: And then comes Daniel Shays.
0: And they've been ignoring the protests. The protests are not only about the specific policies, of taxation, but then, as one might inevitably expect, about the structures of government that led to them.
1: So there were storm warnings before the eruption.
0: There were what called the Ely riots in um, Hampshire County, led by uh, former Minister Samuel Ely, of tax protests. uh, And there were various other kinds of uh, small-scale protests against taxation. Um, But everything really gathers... Uh, in the spring and summer of 1786. And that's because the legislature um, did not offer enough concessions. And people would say, well, wait, the next legislature will get around to it. But people, so two years of the Bowdoin administration and they, you know, the angry protesters were fed up. Many historians have thought that this rising tide of protest was due to the increasingly bleak. Um, Character of the economic depression, and to a mounting tide of lawsuits for debt and foreclosure, and, for, and foreclosure, and but that actually can't really be supported because 1786 actually saw somewhat of an improvement in certain. There was a decline in suits for debt. They peaked in 85, not in 86. So if things were immediate, didn't, you know, um, pain protest, um, you would should have seen this in 1785 happens though in 1786 in the spring and summer um, maybe because the Bode administration was basically reelected in 1786 and then all the and people have been sending from towns all kinds of statements of protest uh, we can't bear these taxes people's uh, homes are being foreclosed their cattle are being taken for public auction um, besides the government the fees of the courts are too high uh, there's no money here how can we possibly pay any of these taxes um, and the Senate is a grievance, the governor's salary is a grievance, and they, uh, the towns vote these long lists of grievances, and they send them in. Um, but now people are increasingly fed up with the incapacity of town representatives from places like western Massachusetts to change anything in the legislature. Actually, big mistake that people made from any of these small, hard-pressed towns in the countryside is they decided to forego sending representatives to the legislature in 85, 86. It's too expensive. You have to pay their costs while they're there. So they didn't show up. And of course, that only made it easier for people near Boston to carry their policies. So um, one way to remedy this was to revert to methods of protest that have been tried and successful in the protest, in the movement against Britain. The well, county convention.
1: Well, indeed, we're only... Ten years away uh, exactly. from Lexington and Concord, May
0: exactly.
1: 19th. So you do the same things. You think that, from the perspective of those who
0: were insurgents and protesters, what do you have in Boston? An unresponsive government, dependent upon wealth and power in the capital, that makes its own policies at the cost of the bulk of the inhabitants, that imposes effectively taxation with distorted representation. And the people, they say, who led us into this revolution and created a new revolution, they said, oh, it's going to be fine. Just trust us. Now they are behaving in the same way as those they displaced, often expressing contempt for the people as you know irregular, leading commotions.
1: Do the leaders of these protests have a vision of what they would like to replace the current government with? Or is this more of a spontaneous protest without a grand vision? Well, it's hard to come up with a
0: grand vision when you're based in towns and you have occasional county conventions. Um, In many ways, we can take from the various statements of protest something of a political program that would probably look like The objections to the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. So, among the things. Get the capital out of Boston, which is too easily influenced by all those merchants. Let's move it to the countryside. Concord loves that idea. It immediately says, put it here in Concord. Let's get rid of those uh, justices of the peace appointed by the governor, and let's have them locally chosen. Let's move courts of justice closer to the people so that people don't have to spend a day or two in, in some other uh, distant town uh, trying to do a lawsuit or register a, a, a will or a deed. Uh, let's make government smaller and closer to the people. That's probably the central political value. It's one, of course, and we'll probably talk about this, It's held by the anti-federalists. Um, but government should be close to the people. The elitist notion that's really drawn from the royal government is let's make government distant from the people and in a key measure, above the people. You know, elevated above them. Think of how you'd go to a court in the 18th century. Governors would, would sit, be elevated above them. You'd go to a meeting house, you know, everybody's sitting, and the minister's elevated above the people. The idea of distance is, is really key to 18th century notions of hierarchy and populist and democratic ideals of government uh, you know, close that distance. And
1: their key value is closeness to the people. I mean, that, that leads me to, I think, the obvious connection that many historians and others have, when we think of Shays' rebellion, is, of course, its role in uh, pushing forward the, the idea of a federal constitution. And clearly, what you have just described as dis- a distant government, uh, an elevated government, is very much in the minds of those who are writing the federal constitution.
0: Yep, And they want to also make sure that the states no longer have the power to enact some of the financial and economic policies that the people who are agrarian populists in the various states have been pressing for. I mentioned Rhode Island. So Rhode Island doesn't have a Shays' Rebellion because the voters throw out the legislature that imposes the stiff taxes and put in one that issues paper money and uh, reduces and eliminates a whole bunch of taxes. Well... From the point of view of the people making the Constitution, the problem was less violent protest in the Massachusetts countryside. It was popular success at the polls in a great many other states. So you've got to do something about that success. So, and you have to do something about the violence. Federal government can, in fact, intercede with forces uh, if there is a rebellion in any state. So you have a way to now... call call out federal troops to help put down rebellions that might arise in the state. And then, of course, we'll see later the Whiskey Rebellion brings uh, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and the federal army to suppress it. Um, But you also have states banned from issuing paper money, states barred from making laws that interfere with the sanctity of contract. and you give the federal government power to raise its own revenue by levying direct taxes on its citizens and to regulate interstate commerce.
1: And well, does that, does that mean, and this is maybe a, an unfair question, does that mean then that the Shaysites, as if we can just generally use that term, are the true heirs to the American Revolution? Uh, and that the Federalists, of course, uh, are in a somewhat different position. Uh, that the Shazites are carrying on the, the spirit of 76, or the April the
0: 19th. Ronald Reagan, at the bicentennial of Shay's Rebellion and the Constitution, um, praised the rebels, as you might expect, because they didn't want taxes. Um, but he praised them in a way that is always a kind of uh, faint praise. They helped set in motion a movement to create a constitution that we're now greatly proud of, because they didn't want that constitution. It was saying that you know we've created detention for the students, you know, and and isn't that a major educational reform? I don't think the students who got detention would say, "Oh, we're just so pleased that they've created this new institution to keep us in school longer." Um, But I I think that we've left out one key thing, and that's that we've given a picture of Massachusetts as polarized between two groups: the Shaysites, agrarian populists, and merchants, financiers, ministers people based in the East. Fact is, there was a huge uh, voter majority, I think, in Massachusetts that disliked financial policies of the Bowdoin administration, but was not at all happy about the way the Bowdoin administration was suppressing the people, especially since once the Bowdoin administration called out military forces to confront the rebels and Shea's um, army, um, they not only easily crushed the insurgents, who may never have been all that intent on a major violent confrontation with Massachusetts, but they also passed a number of laws to penalize politically and socially those who had participated in the insurgency, taking away right to vote for a specified period of time. They barred anyone who had been a major figure in, in the insurgency from teaching school or operating a tavern, that is to say being in any place that might... Control communications, via Senate communications. So they, they, so they were basically disqualifying from the vote, disqualifying from holding any kind of position that could influence other people. In that setting, many people looked and said, "You know, these guys have not only stopped. You know, they brought on a confrontation through policies that they could have moderated. They've then carried on this confrontation beyond the suppression of the violent resistance, and they're basically trying to rig the next election by." Ruling out of the electorate people who were part of this insurgency, so there was a huge outpouring of voters who went for John Hancock, not for Bowdoin. And a lot of members of the legislature were turned out, and the government in the next uh, year um, just you know,
1: it, it suspended all tax payments for a year. I do remember that uh, Hancock, whether out of political principle or just out of sometimes inattention was kindly disposed towards the Shazites. That is, he didn't want retribution, he, right? There were no, as I recall, there were no executions. But, whereas Samuel Adams, on the other hand, the, the old radical revolutionary, Samuel Adams was really uh, rather bitter, vehement uh, towards punishing the Shazites. And, um, and my recollection is that Adams felt, Samuel Adams, felt that somehow the Shazites had rebelled against a republic uh, which he thought was unforgivable.
0: So he, he called the draconian punishment yeah. of, of the insurgent. My big question about Samuel Adams, which no one has yet, I think, uh, addressed. So we're told that Samuel Adams led his entire career in the public world, that he was casual about finances, negligent of his own economic affairs, um, that he basically thrown away the inheritance from his father, and his friends always had to help him out. To be lieutenant governor, to be senator, lieutenant governor, and then governor of Massachusetts, you would have to be, as I said, I think in the top two or three percent of all wealth holders. How did Samuel Adams meet the qualification? If everything we're told about him is true, then he didn't. If he didn't but swore the oath of office, then how do we distinguish him from violating Massachusetts law and holding office? from those insurgents who, in his mind, had violated law and needed to be punished strictly. One of the great mysteries that I want somebody to solve, maybe someday I'll have to write another essay for New England quarterly, is how did Samuel
1: Adams and others get the money to hold the offices they held? Well, if I can sign you up for that essay now, I will do it. Uh, I just want to thank you for this wonderful engagement. This is sort of the best kind of history, I think taking a look at an event that we all, quote, know about, re-examining the evidence, interpreting the evidence through a different perspective, a different prism, and coming to some very provocative conclusions, ones that have great resonance to our own times. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Appreciate it.